Hello and welcome to Buried Treasure. My name is Lou Smoley, and with this program we begin a new series that focuses on 19th century symphonies by composers who have been all but forgotten over the past century and deserve being revived. One such composer was Joachim Roth. He was born in 1822 in a small town on the shores of Lake Zurich in Switzerland and grew up to become a composer of some renown in his day. His family lived in poor circumstances, but he was able to get a good education in his father's native Württemberg, where he studied philosophy, philology, and mathematics, until his family could no longer afford to keep him there. Rolf had a natural talent for music, played the violin, piano, and organ from an early age. He was largely self-taught, yet his music was praised by none other than, for example, Felix Mendelssohn and Franz Liszt both of whom supported Roth's career. Roth might have studied with Mendelssohn, but the German composer died before arrangements could be made. The situation was quite different with regard to Franz Liszt. Although Roth suffered poverty after moving to Zurich when he was 22-23, he seized on a great opportunity that changed his life and career. He heard that Franz Liszt was appearing in Basel on the 19th of June, 1845, some 80 kilometers from Zurich. Undaunted by the distance and the pouring rain, Raff walked all the way to the concert, only to find that it was sold out. Fortunately, Liszt's secretary noticed Raff standing there in the hallway, dejected, disappointed, and dripping wet, and sympathized with the youngster. He got him in to see the performance, sitting on the stage in an ever-widening pool of water. Soon Liszt took the budding musician under his wing and brought him on tour, giving Roth administrative duties. Then Roth began to show his compositional talents to Liszt uh, and suggested revisions to, as well as orchestrating, Liszt's music. And so a long relationship was established that while it had some twists and turns, remained steadfast for the most part of many years. Some friction did develop when Roth made claims about how much he actually contributed to Liszt's orchestral music. More than just orchestration, he claimed, but also actual composition. These claims are refutable, but at the time they threatened to turn the relationship sour. On Roth's part, he became irritated over his subservient position to Liszt, despite his deep gratitude to the Hungarian pianist and composer. And Roth began to feel stifled, particularly with respect to his creative development. But over the years, bad feelings abated, and their friendship remained unbroken despite the antagonism of Liszt's carping mistress, Princess Caroline St. Wittgenstein. Through Liszt, Roth became acquainted with the members of the Wagner Circle, who advocated new ideas in musical composition, such as conductor-pianist Hans von Bülow, who also supported Roth's attempts to broaden the base of his exposure. While an eager Wagner enthusiast, Roth began to take a more independent stance as his personal style of music-making became more individual. Most of Roth's early music was written for the piano, or for piano and orchestra. 
Some of his compositions were performed thanks to the efforts of both Liszt and von Bülow. As his larger compositions were included in concerts, such as the Ode to Spring for Piano and Orchestra, which, by the way, we played during our recent Buried Treasure program on Spring. Roth began to consider the symphony as a genre of a composition. In 1854, now he's a little over 30 years old, Roth composed a grand symphony in E minor, which unfortunately has been lost. But thereafter, Roth was to complete 11 symphonies, the symphony number one being written between 1859 and 1861. In this first part of the series on Roth's symphonies, we'll hear the first three. Like Brahms, whose first symphony was not completed until he was 43 years old, Roth was also a late bloomer as far as symphonies were concerned, being 39 when he produced his first, or at least his first published symphony. It is interesting to note that there is a huge gap between Schumann's last symphony, which, by the way, is not his fourth, but his third, which was written in 1850, long after the fourth, and Brahms' first symphony, which was finished in 1876. It was Roth who was the important composer of symphonies during this 25-year period. There are others who are important to some degree, but not, I think, as significant as Joachim Roth. And we'll explore these other symphonists in future programs. So let's begin with the first symphony. In D major, opus 96, subtitled An das Vaterland. Roth's official first symphony was his longest, consisting of five movements that take about an hour and 20 minutes to perform. Although its subtitle of the fatherland would seem to suggest his sentiments, Roth was by no means a nationalistic composer. But after the 1848 uprisings throughout Europe, and through the time this symphony was written, there was much sentiment in Germany for unification. Roth made his sympathies in this regard clear when he included Gustav Reichardt's 1825 melody written to a poem by Ernst Moritz Arndt called Was ist des Deutschen Vaterland, which was popular at the time the first symphony was written. After Roth completed the first symphony in 1861, he offered it in the competition sponsored by the, the Gesellschaft der Musikfreunde in Vienna. The judges included some of the most important music figures at the time, Ferdinand Hiller, who was a noted pianist and composer, Karl Reinecke, another important composer in Germany during this period, Robert Folkmann, and Vincent Lochner, both of whom were also composers. Roth's symphony was awarded the first prize over the other 31 entries and was given a successful performance in Vienna on February 22, 1863. Roth did not write the symphony to fulfill some programmatic intentions at first, but fashioned a program for the work after it was written. His daughter, Helena, in her biography of her father, suggests that, and I quote, the first three movements are supposed to show German life and existence. The fourth describes German disunity. And the last movement begins with a lament on the destiny of greater Germany and then proceeds to develop prophetic visions of future unity and majesty, unquote. Ralph established one of his basic compositional traits at the very beginning of the symphony, 
by stating a group of motivic fragments that he will use throughout both the movement and the symphony, a procedure inherited from Beethoven. Although the movement is in sonata form, marked allegro, Ralph begins to develop his material virtually at once. Yet these motivic figures do not take on final form until the end of the entire symphony, a procedure that is already an advance over traditional symphonic form. Listian fanfares combined with Wagnerian harmonic ambiguity and Tchaikovskyan pathos to produce a purely Rothian style, one that fits perfectly within the period I described earlier between Schumann and Brahms. One even notices suggestions of Strauss's tone poems here. As you will hear, the movement is contrapuntal in style, heroic in character, and optimistic in sensibility, with a sense of Listian drama ever-present. The second movement is a scherzo in D minor marked Allegro Vivace, light years away from the majestic opening movement. It frequently shifts meters from 6-8 to 2-4 time, sometimes joining them together in a in layered texture of opposites, typical again of Roth's style. A series of motives is again presented that take on various shapes and guises. The mercurial nature of the music, weaving in and out of orchestral tutties, can sound breathless. A second theme that approaches F major features four horns. The trio in B-flat has a simple song-like character, also typical of Roth. Thematic repetitions begin to produce the effect of a whirlwind, until the opening scherzo subject returns. The movement ends quietly as the various motives of both scherzo and trio literally fall apart, a procedure often used later by Mahler. The third movement, marked Allegretto, shows Roth's ability to produce long-lined arches of melody. Here Roth makes specific reference to Beethoven's Adagio from his Ninth Symphony both of which share the key of B-flat major, their tempo relationships and form of procedure. Ralph's music here is gently lyrical, kind of respite between the rapid pace of the scherzo and the movements that follow. Thematic figures are tossed back and forth among various solo instruments, again a typically Tchaikovskyan process. As with the preceding movement, the structure is principally variation form, somewhat akin to Beethoven's Adagio of his Ninth Symphony. The Larghetto movement ends quietly as themes slowly recede and dissolve. Ralph apparently sought to depict German disunity in the fourth movement. The key is now G minor, and the double meter of the second movement returns. As with the first movement, it begins with motivic fragments. Soon, Reichardt's melody emerges pushing aside the disunity of the opening. At this point, the opening motives and the Reichardt theme are developed extensively. Soon the key of G major settles in, and a motive played by the violin at the beginning of the symphony returns in augmented form. This reverts the direction of the symphony. After a few strong climaxes, energy begins to dissipate, and the movement peters out in G major without any sense of finality. Roth begins the finale, where the fourth movement ended up, with a, a tormented Larghetto Sostenuto in D minor. 
The movement is divided into three principal sections. As the music proceeds, it becomes more aggressive and takes on a more positive character. Long-toned brass fanfares in Wagnerian grand style combine to present a mysterious ur-thematic statement, but it is transformed and expanded in the development of the principal motive from the first movement with which this sonata movement comes to a resolution. Reichardt's heroic theme is heard once more with other elements of the work asserting their importance in the concluding stretto ablaze with optimism. Despite its considerable length, Roth's first symphony is impressive for its unified structure, thematic material, and craftsmanship. It is among the finest first symphonies written in the 19th century. What distinguishes this symphony from the ten Roth was to write thereafter is the absence of Roth's usual harmonic language, which will develop in succeeding symphonies. So let's listen to Roth's Symphony No. 1 in D major, Opus 96, subtitled On the Svateland. It's performed by the Rhenish Philharmonic Orchestra, directed by Samuel Friedman.
We've just heard the first symphony of Joachim Raff on our exploration of all 11 of his symphonies. It was performed by the Rhenish Philharmonic Orchestra, directed by Samuel Friedman. Encouraged by the success of his first symphony, Raff set out to write a second, which was completed in 1866. The orchestration was standard, much more moderate than the first, but he made imaginative use of the instruments, creating interesting instrumental exchanges between sections and generating much color and variety. The second symphony is in four movements, following the traditional pattern. The first movement is marked Legro, the second a slow movement, Andante con moto, the third is a scherzo, Allegro Vivace, with a trio, and the finale begins Andante Maestoso, moves on to an Allegro con Spirito, and ends with a Piumoso. Unlike most of his symphonies, the second offers no overt program or extra-musical connections. The first movement is in sonata form, divided into four sections, with scherzando elements present. Its strong, energetic optimism is present throughout. Although the melodies and harmonies are simple, the musical flow is characterized by an underlying restlessness generated from constant modulations and tonal diversions. Roth's sequential treatment of melodic material looks forward to Tchaikovsky and Glazunov. Although the music here may sound folkish in an easygoing vein, it is written with masterful intelligence and brilliant virtuosity. One might say that the absence of grand gestures or tragic climaxes is indicative of Roth's attachment to an older style of music-making, more akin to Beethoven, Schumann, Liszt, and Mendelssohn than to Liszt, Wagner, uh, and Mahler. The second movement, Andante con Moto, is in E-flat major in three parts and contains elements of sonata and variation forms. Its refined, prayer-like main theme, played initially by the strings and then winds, of course not in exactly the same way, is a good example of Roth's penchant for continuous thematic development. Contrarywise to what I just said about Rob's avoidance of the tragic or grand gesture, the movement's middle section in C minor darkens the mood with forceful dotted rhythms and upward thrusts. A fugal section ushers in a strong C major climax, which leads back to an abbreviated version of the soft strains that open the movement. A gruff, almost demonic scherzo follows in G minor, dactylic rhythms counterpoise with triple meter, sometimes resulting in frequent metrical shifts which tend to intensify the dramatic impact of the music. The trio, which concentrates on winds, shifts the character of the music virtually 180 degrees. Now everything is sweetness and light with soft, wispy fragments of melodic material tossed to and fro, engendering an almost humorous quality. Ralph begins the last movement with an introduction that rarely appears in his symphonic finales. In A-flat major, it is replete with dotted rhythms and sweeping scalar figures that relate to the Andante movement. But the introduction does not last very long and shifts to an allegro con spirito full of Beethovenian spirit. It's almost as if the music has a train to catch as it speeds along breathlessly. The development section is a polyphonic display like few others. 
quickly tossing thematic fragments around to heighten the energy level in preparation for a rollicking, big-hearted recapitulation. As in the opening movement, a second development acts as a coda to bring this jubilant finale to a close. And so here is the Symphony No. 2 in C Major, Opus 140, by Joachim Roth. It's performed by the Orchestra de la Suisse Romande under the direction of Naomi Yervi, a recent Shandos recording.
We've just heard the second symphony by Joachim Raff in our series of programs on Raff's symphonies. And this one performed by the Orchestra de la Suisse Romande, directed by Naimi Yervi. Now we come to one of Raff's most popular symphonies, the third, subtitled Involved, or In the Forest. Although the first symphony had an extra musical aspect in being nationalistic in orientation, it was with the third that Raff began to concentrate on programmatic symphonies in what has been called his middle period. He wrote it three years after the second, which has no obvious program. Akin to Beethoven's comments about his pastoral symphony, Raff said that he did not intend to describe any particular scenario, but only the feelings that the woodlands aroused in him, at least in the abstract. Written in 1869, three years after the Second Symphony, Imvald owes much to Mendelssohn, but also to Schumann and to a lesser degree Wagner. Some passages foreshadow even Tchaikovsky, but there is no question that here Roth speaks with a distinctive voice. This is not music of imitation by any means. Despite what may sound like allusions to Wagner's ring cycle, that monumental work was finished seven years after Roth's symphony. Yet in some sense, Roth's motivic material includes horn calls, which of course have often been used in hunting symphonies before Roth, frisky material that conjures up the Venusberg music of Tannhäuser, which was first performed in 1845 in Dresden, long before the symphony was written, and sustained melodies with a distinctive Rheingold-like flavor, Wagner's opera having been first performed in the same year Roth's Third Symphony was written, 1869. Each of the three movements are subtitled in Roth's rather extensive manner. The opening allegro is called Daytime, Thoughts, and Impressions. The second movement, At Dusk. And it's in two parts. The first is Reverie, and the second is a dance of the dryads. The third and final movement uh, is also in several parts. It begins at night, quiet rain of night in the forest, coming and going of the wild hunt of Frau Hole and Wotan, break of day. I'll explain these names in a moment. Here, Roth's melodic, harmonic, and orchestral gifts are apparent from first to last. His characterization of the forest primeval is simply fascinating, with its combination of charming lyricism and frolicking dance music. Yet there is a certain underlying uncertainty that colors the atmosphere and never seems to completely disappear, alluding to the mystery of the forest with its dark and elusive aspects. As commentator Philip Gipp suggested, and I quote, all through flits shadowy figures of the lightest motion, but uncertain mood, a kind of secret hovering between the beauty and the terror, unquote. After a soft opening prelude that begins the first movement, daytime, thoughts and impressions, the cry of the horn is heard to awaken the forest creatures. Low strings carry an allegro theme answered by a third subject in the high strings which can be considered the motto of the forest. The music exudes with joy and bright sunlight that disperses 
the enchanting yet sad song of the woodwinds that is the first theme. Like Mahler later, Roth makes much use of the fourth interval. As the music becomes more energetic, growing into a mad world, a climax is reached on the low strings song, now declaimed joyfully. The movement closes with a solemn horn call. The second movement, as I mentioned earlier, is subtitled At Dusk and is in two parts, Reverie and The Dance of the Dryads. The first part begins with a warm, light theme in strings and bassoon with almost a hymn-like quality, possibly implying the sacredness of the forest. Clarinets sing rhapsodic phrases just like the song of birds. The Dance of the Dryads owes much to Schubert and Mendelssohn in its folk-like character. When this music develops, it takes on an almost forbiddingly demonic quality. Like Mahler, Roth may have understood the latent negative aspects of nature, sometimes destructive. Some passages seem to foreshadow Tchaikovsky, particularly the march movement from his Pathétique Symphony, written many years later. As the day darkens and night approaches toward the close, a wild, frenetic dance conjures up the dark side of nature without quite succumbing to it. The last movement is the most extensive in the symphony. It takes about 17 and a half minutes to perform. Its long subtitle, At Night, Quiet Rain of Night in the Forest, Coming and Going of the Wild Hunt with Frau Hola and Wotan, Break of Day. It virtually constitutes a kind of symphony in miniature. But first, the reference to Frau Hola, or also called Hulda, and Wotan need some explication. Here, Roth refers to the world of German folk tales. According to ancient lore, Frau Hola dwelled in high mountains, with magical lakes, or possibly in the heavens. She had a good nature, as indicated by her name, Hulda, which is also the title of an opera by César Franck on the same story. One might liken her to the goddess Erda, or, if you will, Mother Earth. With the advent of Christianity in northern Europe, Wotan and Holda took on the characteristics of devil and grandmother. The spirits of heroic men came to Wotan, while those of unbaptized babies were given to Holda's charge. Consequently, as Philip Gipp put it, the mighty march of worthy gods and heroes became the wild hunt of the wasting host of lost souls and devils, unquote. As the finale opens, soft, murmuring voices sing a melodic figure of poetic beauty that conjures up the advent of night. A distant horn call ushers in images of the wild hunt of the gods on galloping steeds. Strings invoke a steady hunting song that will become much cruder and boisterous later. A wild whirlwind develops from the clattering gallop and sounds of the second hunt song appear. Here, they sound much like they had come from Das Rheingold. Scraps of the hunting songs intermingle with a kind of march, which give way suddenly to music of festive rejoicing, not hampered by the terrors of the forest that had occasionally hovered over the music before. All is sweetness and light, a momentary hush during which the first motive of the night is faintly heard in the background, 
precedes the virtual disappearance of the galloping music. Now night once again descends over the atmosphere. The movement and the symphony end as daybreak dawns with the return of the hunting songs now in a chorale-like unified splendor. And so, Imvalde, the symphony number three by Joachim Roth is performed for us by the Milton Keynes City Orchestra directed by Hilary Devon Witten.
you've just heard the third symphony of Joachim Rolf, Imvald in the Forest, performed by the Milton Keynes City Orchestra, directed by Hilary Devon Witten. And so we bring the first part of our four-part series on the symphonies of Joachim Rolf to a close. Next time, we'll hear symphonies numbers four, five, and six, And I hope you enjoyed this. I hope it is a revealing experience for many of you because I I think that Roth's music deserves a place in the standard repertory. And so this has been Lou Smoley for Buried Treasure, as always, wishing you great adventures in discovering the buried treasures of classical music.